Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we're talking about the Internet of Things. You're going to learn what that is and why it's an important investigative tool you might not be using. As the technology that saturates our lives and business evolves, data from the Internet of Things is becoming an essential element of a thorough fire investigation. Guiding us in this discussion is ATF Supervisory Special Agent Certified Fire Investigator Dr. Dawn Dodsworth. She is also an IAAI CFI. Dr. Dodsworth began her career in a local fire department as both a structural and a wildland firefighter. In college, she interned with the ATF and realized that was the career path she wanted. Dr. Dodsworth served in the ATF's Boston, Louisville, and Seattle field divisions, she was a member of the ATF National Response Team and International Response Team prior to her promotion to Group Supervisor for all arson and explosives assets in the Seattle Field Division and is the ATF Seattle Division Response Team Commander. She also is a member of the NFPA 1030 Technical Committee. For her doctoral dissertation in Forensic Sciences at Oklahoma State University, Dr. Dodsworth examined the Internet of Things and its use in fire investigations as a source of objective data that can inform fire origin and cause determination. She routinely uses it in her work, and she's here today to tell you how you can put the Internet of Things to work for you in your fire investigations. Dr. Dodsworth, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Rod. I appreciate it. Very grateful uh, for your time and for the research and uh, your dissertation, which I, I've read some of and really uh, loved what you did. So Dr. Dodgers, let's start off by defining the Internet of Things. I'm guessing a lot of people haven't heard the phrase or might miss the opportunities uh, it or they present in an investigation. Absolutely. The, um, so just as a quick caveat beforehand is, you know, when I was looking for subjects for my doctoral dissertation, I didn't want to do something that I was familiar with. I wanted to kind of challenge myself and force myself out of the box and to learn something new. So the, uh, the Internet of Things basically involves a network of things that are linked together uh, through sensors, communication equipment. Uh, it links things among themselves, so sensors to other sensors or devices to other devices or it could also occur between people and things. So essentially it's interrelated devices, machines and objects with unique identifiers that transfer data over networks without requiring any human interaction. So for the layman's terms, I'm, we're all very familiar with uh, burglar alarms and uh, fire alarm systems and sprinkler systems, but for layman, Laymen and women, we're also looking at things such as Wi-Fi routers, um, any type of satellite linking, uh, your Alexa app and your Alexa in, in your home, Nest thermostats. You know, we have all these smart homes now. So really, when you think about it, the Internet of Things is so pervasive in our daily environment right now that a lot of times we don't even take into consideration that these devices are present and that actually certain other aspects of our lives may be connecting with them, such as our iPhone, or if you have a, a Fitbit or an iWatch or whatnot. So it's, uh, it's, it's amazing the amount of uh, data that is out there to tap into. So just so I correct myself, um, it, it, I always think of it as 
anything from from one thing that might be collecting data to building systems uh, that are could be almost running an entire uh, facility. Yeah, these systems are actually in, included in that. So, you know, in your system, you may have a uh, a control panel, and then you may have various sensors and devices located throughout the throughout the building that are you know activated or alarm as a mechanism of some type of interaction between the environment and the system or you know other devices in the system and there could also potentially be human interaction in the system great so um thank you i appreciate the clarity so how how does the internet of things work can you give some examples of how devices are sensing transmitting and recording data that can be helpful to fire investigators oh sure absolutely um so when when we're looking at doing an origin and cause or we're looking at doing a fire scene examination obviously one of the goals is we want to be able to determine the area of origin and the necessity to properly determine the area of origin lies in the fact that our fire cause is going to be within our area of origin so ultimately if our area of origin is not properly and correctly identified then ultimately the cause of the fire will also be incorrect. So when we're looking at these systems and we're considering them, there's a number of, of things that the investigator really needs to consider when they arrive onto the scene. You know, these systems are gonna basically, um, they can be autonomous or human initiated. It could be uh, anything such as, you know, a door or window opening, uh, user commands, motion activated, smoke alarm activation sprinkler activation so we have all these different potential sensors and devices such as uh you know a co detector a temperature alarm you know we have these environmental control systems we have these nest thermostats in homes that are uh, measuring and, and looking and recording the temperature within your home and the humidity and we have different you know water flow alarms and whatnot so when something goes on and, and interacts with these devices and sensors, it ends up getting um, trans transmitted either through Wi-Fi or satellite or cellular network or Bluetooth. There's there's a number of different ways, gateways that this information is, is sent then to uh, the cloud or a server or a uh, some type of remote monitoring system or network, either within that building or you know, ancillary and outside of the building. And basically then what happens is there's different output devices such as sirens and horns and strobes and bells that may be initiated. So if you're in a uh, large public building and we have a fire alarm that activates, what do you always hear? You always hear the, the horn and, the, and you see the strobe. But these systems also can uh, be interacted with some type of a user interface such as uh, different apps on your phone or your computer and emails, and text messages and websites. So it's, you know, the data is constantly being sent out and then sent back between these sensors and devices and the system as a whole. Yeah, it makes for quite a, a web. Shall yeah, we say. it's it's actually pretty amazing. I mean, the the prevalence of this stuff that is out there is just things that you know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily consider 
when they're uh, when they're looking at you know when they're looking at these systems, you know you or, you want you want to look and see that okay there's sprinkler systems in here I see a fire alarm, but you're not necessarily considering other devices such as maybe smart appliances or Wi-Fi system or whatnot. Yeah, and in the worst case scenario, I would think that for an arsonist, it would be hard to keep track of all of this um, and all the places where data might be. Um, Absolutely. So you touched on this when we first started uh, our discussion, but I think your motivation is very important. Um, can you talk more about how you came to the idea of doing this for your topic, uh, for your dissertation? Sure. You know, as, as part of the doctoral dissertation process, you want to have some kind of research that's done that has not necessarily been comprehensively done before. So what I did was I kind of started looking at some cases and fire scenes that I had been involved with and um, kind of looking at, at different aspects of them and, and, you know, trying to look for something that I thought would be, um, you know, an advance to uh, our personnel out there that are doing investigations, be it, you know, something, uh, something small or something large. And the more I looked at it, I really kind of, and, and spoke with people, I under, really understood that a lot of people are really familiar with, you know, a lot of these systems, but they, you know, aside from the obvious, you know, looking at sprinkler activations and things like that, they might not necessarily be using the systems to their full potential for the amount of data that can be recovered. Yeah, it's, you had another motivation and, um, uh, you know, a path forward. And I, I love the quote, I think it's paucity of research. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, you know, I know fire investigation, obviously we're, we're a science and we're always evolving and we're always learning new things. And, you know, as we progress, Sometimes uh, old styles of doing things are debunked or information that we might have relied on in the past as being reliable, we've now determined is, is not reliable. So um, what I really kind of wanted to try and do was to kind of bridge the gap that was identified in the uh, National Academy of Sciences report called Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, A Path Forward, which was uh, published in 2009. And basically in there, they were looking at different types of sciences and, and evaluating the different types of sciences and making recommendations as to how they could be better and where they may have some shortcomings. And really one of, one of the big conclusions of that report was that fire investigation and the uh, interpretation of fire patterns really needed to be put on a more scientific footing. So, while the NAS report is basically focusing on improving and increasing the effectiveness of various scientific disciplines via their recommendations, I think it's our responsibility as investigators to try to push our, uh, our careers and you know, our, our jobs forward by trying to identify the issues where it's been showed that we may potentially fall short or we might be able to uh, increase our efficiency and try to identify those and try to bridge those gaps. From what I understood from what you wrote, um, that subjective interpretations, uh, whether you're an experienced investigator or not, uh, this is too important and there's been too much criticism. Um, can you speak to that? 
Now, when we're looking at the, the issue of potential subjectivity, we're really looking at the understanding and interpreting of something via an individual person's own mind. So, you know, you're drawing from your knowledge, training, and experience, uh, but at the, you know, at the same time, subjectivity can occasionally be problematic because it's incapable, incapable of external validation. Uh, a lot of times, especially years past, a lot of answers were, you know, essentially the, it is because I say it is approach. And, um, you know, also we have these previously accepted rules of thumbs that were later identified as, as being inaccurate. So, you know, you know, we run into, we can run into a lot of different issues there with, um, with people kind of coming to their own, you know, conclusions of things. And, you know, essentially the more ambiguous the data that's presented to us is, the more likely that a conclusion can be influenced by our own biases that each of us has within us. It can distort and discolor, uh, discolor the nature of things by mingling our own fallible nature uh, with it. So we could then be susceptible to such things as, you know, confirmation bias and tunnel vision. So really what I was trying to look at is some way, some type of methodology that can be used that can further create a separation between the interpreter, which is the fire investigator and the work at hand, which is the fire scene processing. Which is a nice bridge to uh, my next question for you. And that was, you know, asking you to summarize what you did in the dissertation and what your findings were. I loved it when you said something about uh, Internet of Things gives us an opportunity with hard data points. Yes. Essentially, what I did was I wanted to uh, take an approach in my research, which is um, was kind of a mixed method study. So what I was doing was essentially I was creating a, uh, a population in a sample pool, and then I was looking at uh, cases that these individuals were directly related to that they had worked on and that they had written uh, reports on. And then I also wanted to speak with them individually just to kind of, uh, you know, essentially kind of get an idea what their personal experience was. And that's more of the, uh, that's more of the, you know, qualitative aspect of the research. So essentially what I did was I had sent out a blanket email to the entire cadre of our ATF certified fire investigators and our national response team members and our engineers at the uh, fire research lab in Maryland. And I basically asked for them to self-report on if anybody had been involved in any of these uh, larger fire scenes because that's what my dissertation focused on was the larger, larger scenes as opposed to residences and vehicles. And so out of the approximate 120 people that I emailed, I received about 20 responses back from people uh, explaining to me that they had been involved in a case that this, this information was used. So then what I looked at also was, you know, okay, what was the case? And is the case adjudicated yet or is it still an open investigation because obviously any type of open investigation uh, i would not be able to use in my research Good. so um essentially what i did was i then took my took my sample and i stratified it into uh three sections i took two atf certified fire investigators 
two ATF electrical engineers and two ATF fire protection engineers. And they were the people that I ended up actually doing the interview with. And then that interview was transcribed and I sent the transcription to the people that I interviewed and I just asked them to check it for completeness and accuracy. And then essentially what I did was I went through and um, you know, in research, we call it coding. Um, so you're going through and kind of looking at different concepts and, and different terminology and essentially uh, splitting apart what was being said and, and kind of looking at the verbiage and kind of relinking it together, uh, forming you know, bonds and connections between the different words. So you know, after, I, after I did that, then I kind of mapped that out it kind of basically was able to pull out some of the color commentary from uh, from our experts. Nice. So can you share with us some of the things that you heard from the SMEs you interviewed uh, about the potential of, of this internet of things? Yes, absolutely. Really when when speaking with the uh, the six subject matter experts, um, the, the different things that came up uh, time and again, really kind of, you know, reflected things that the investigators at the scene really kind of need to look at and consider. So the first one is um, the system, the type of system and the sensor and device type. Um, so when you are at a fire scene and you're looking at possibly trying to utilize this information, um, what exact types of systems are present? Uh, is there a fire alarm system? Is there a burglar alarm system? Is there you know, a video system, which, you know, video is really helpful for us, but as we're going to see in one of the case studies that I'll talk about, um, the failure of those different uh, cameras can also uh, help you to track back to the area of origin of a fire. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to identify those systems. It's going to be helpful to interview the, uh, the owner of the building or maybe the maintenance supervisor or you know, if you're at a large residence, you know, maybe the resident, uh, the owners of the structure, the owners of the house, and just figure out, okay, what specific types of systems are present. And then once you know what types of systems are present, then you're going to start to think about, okay, what are the different ways that this particular system uh, would be activated so that it provides some, types of, some type of context to the data points that you're looking at. Uh, another consideration is the, uh, the construction of the individual devices and sensors. Uh, considering how these different devices and sensors can fail within a, within a structure. You know, for example, is the, uh, is the sensor device made of plastic or is it made of metal? Because obviously heat is gonna impact those and affect those differently. You'll also wanna consider how is the system installed? Is it a uh, wireless system or is the system um, hard, hardwired into the structure? And obviously if it's hardwired, then you're gonna wanna have some kind of an understanding as to the orientation of the feeds that it's wired between the different um, devices and sensors and between the panel. And you wanna kind of understand that because you might have an activation or a, some type of trouble signal from a particular device or sensor. Uh, if it's a wireless device or sensor, that's going to be a little bit different data point than if it's a um, device or sensor that is hardwired because the investigator could just be getting 
some type of a, a data point from heat and flame impinging upon the, um, the conductors or the, uh, the cables that are connecting it. So we also wanna look at that and we wanna look at and consider exactly where are these feeds being run? Are they above the ceiling or are they below the ceiling? Because obviously, once again, that's gonna affect the, uh, the data point that we're getting. And you know, maybe the time frame within you know, a device or sensor activating versus a, uh, a wired system having uh, an, an issue due to thermal effect and, and yeah. then sending a signal we also want to have some type of um, schematic as to where these different devices and sensors may be located throughout the building. So what I always do when I go to a scene, a lot of times I'll have a, an agent that just is basically just trying to track down these data points for me. So they may go to the uh, the owner of the building and ask for a set of blueprints. They may contact the, uh, the company that may have installed the system and ask if they still have a schematic of the installation. Uh, we've had it to the point where, you know, we might not have actually the hard documentation, but at least the owner or employee could actually draw on a, on a map, you know, circles kind of like the approximate location because that gives everything perspective and context. Yeah. You know, then, we want to make sure that we synchronize all those times because, you know, with each Internet of Thing device and sensor and system, there's going to be some type of timestamp with that. So we want to make sure that all the times are normalized so that we're not comparing apples to oranges. We're comparing apples to apples. So, you know, once again, within that uh, context is absolutely the key. And then finally, you know, we want to be able to properly interpret and apply the uh, the data to our fire scene and and try to use that to um, kind of tell us the story of what went on and you know again it's it's a it's a data point and it's different systems and a different perspective for the investigator to take when they're working uh, through the scene trying to reach their conclusion and it's a way also for testing you know different hypotheses as to area of origin. Well, you know your stuff so well. You went right through. Um, to what I was going to bring up. So I'm wondering if there are other conclusions from your dissertation that you felt were important. So I think that, um, you know, the conclusions as far as my research, I think there was a lot of strengths that I think are really, you know, positive and that of, you know, unmatched reliability. You know, it's really kind of hard to argue with an actual timestamp. So it kind of gives you this unbiased uh, timestamp or empirical data point to look at. And, you know, in that same thing, the investigator, by using this data, are uh, also utilizing hard times, which are actual times, as opposed to a soft time or an estimate of something happening. So, you know, you may have a witness that's giving you a uh, an interview, and they could say, well, you know, I usually wake up at 530 in the morning, and so I was up for maybe about 10 minutes. So I'm thinking that this incident may have happened at, you know, 540 or 545. Well, that's an estimate, but when we actually have a hard time, it's, it's empirical and, you know, once again, you know, context is important so that all this data points has, has to be normalized, but it's, it's really hard to argue about that timestamp. I think that um, using 
using this type of uh, data from these systems, it assists in the removal of you know, the potential subjectivity and it ensures um, more accuracy, quality and integrity of the data points and it makes them more empirical for the investigator. The, uh, the data that we, we obtain from this, uh, these systems and these devices can not only assist with the area of origin of a fire, but it also can assist with um, tracking the fire progression through a structure and even potentially with different types of cause hypothesis. So ultimately, you know, the strength that, you know, utilizing this data from these systems can provide investigators with a degree of confidence in their conclusions as to the area of origin. It's a lot, that's a lot going on. Um, I mean, there's always a lot going on in a fire investigation. One thing I hadn't thought of until I was listening to you was how much complexity this adds to an already burdensome job. <laughs> yeah. <know>? It's like, <laughs> you, like you guys needed one more thing to try to dig up. I know. Um, I know. It's, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. But you know, the, the, the thing of it is, I mean, I'll give you a, a perfect example of kind of actually the, this utilizing these data points in, in practice uh, from a remote location. And it just was really fortuitous that, you know, this, this situation pre presented itself in the middle of my written comprehensives for, for the PhD program. So I was in my office in Seattle, Washington, and I received a call for a large warehouse fire in Guam. So literally, it was like a call from the future because it's across the international dateline. <laughs> and um, so they had a, um, it was a storage warehouse where they stored documents and things for, uh, you know, government transfers and things like that. And it was a 33,000 square foot warehouse at, that had burned. So in speaking with the, uh, the local agents and speaking with the local supervisor, um, I was basically trying to analyze what type of a, a response we were going to need to to have out to Guam, and you know, obviously, just even thinking about how long the trip is out there. I mean, it's going to be arduous for anybody, but I wanted to make sure that I was sending the proper personnel and the proper amount of personnel for what the scene actually required. So what I would do was, you know, each each morning I would get up, and I would. Uh, draft a long email to the supervisor out in Guam, and I would kind of give him a punch list of things to look at and information to gather for me. And um, then at the at the end of the day, it would be kind of like the middle of the day for them. Uh, I would get the the answers to my questions, or I would get the photographs or the information I needed, and then I would analyze that, and then I would come up with a, with another list. So essentially, uh, we were able to get uh, really good schematics from inside of the structure. And there was a camera system within the structure that uh, was functioning. And they also had um, heat detectors in there. And essentially, what I was able to do by you know, tracking the, uh, the activations and, and looking at the, uh, the different camera systems is uh, essentially narrow down the area of interest for us from 33,000 square feet to 1,000 square feet. Wow. And that, that was literally from like the other side of the world. So as a result of that, we didn't 
we didn't need to send the national response team activation out there, which would have involved, you know, 20 or 25 agents and, and experts going out there. Um, and it would have been, you know, crazy expensive for the agency to have to foot that bill for the travel out there. We were able to um, essentially uh, tier our response to, I sent two, uh, two of my certified fire investigators from Portland went. I had one certified fire investigator from our fire research lab in Maryland go. And I had two engineers from our fire research lab. It was an electrical engineer and a fire protection engineer. And then we had a, a number of regular general uh, field agents that are not fire specialists. They're, they're just plain old special agents. Uh, they actually responded from Honolulu. So essentially we sent about eight people to, uh, to assist the Guam field office. And by the time those experts had arrived, uh, we were able to, you know, still working remotely, pull a lot of data points for them. And I was writing up a briefing paper every day and sending it to them so that while they were traveling, they'd have access to this data. And while they're traveling, you know, these 16 or 20 hours out there, they could sit there and be evaluating things and coming up with the game plan. And, you know, I was really happy to see when they arrived in Guam, they were able to hit the ground running. And uh, they were there for about three or four days. And they were actually able to uh, classify the fire as accidental. Well, that's a beautiful story. You know, it's, uh, I'm sure you made a lot of people happy at the budget office, but I think <laughs> it, it also looks good, I think, when the proper scale of response shows up to a location. I mean, just just the thought of you know and relationships are important but just the thought of you showing up with whatever size your nrt would have been in that case or international response it's uh wow that's a that's a great story so i, I want to go back just a step and and focus on some more tactical practical level things for fire investigators because i i think you know everybody's learning and some of these things uh are, are, are very important and, and the details of them. So what types of systems should the investigator be looking for? I know we've touched on it already. Well, the types of systems obviously are the ones that everybody is familiar with, which you know, includes your you know, fire protection systems, your, um, you know, which would include your sprinkler system, fire alarm systems, uh, burglar alarm systems. And you also wanna look for, uh, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, is there a Wi-Fi system in the building? Are there different um, antennas where you can connect to a Wi-Fi system throughout the structure? Uh, we, had a, we had a case study in Texas where our experts actually uh, were able to map out the different Wi-Fi satellites and they were able to um, narrow down the area of origin just based on the failure of those connection points within the building. Nice. Um, you want to... You also want to consider, you know, when we're talking about potential cause hypothesis, uh, you might want to consider are there are there Wi-Fi connection points outside of your building of origin, you know, let's say on a public street where you have public Wi-Fi access, uh, people will be walking and their phones are going to be connecting to these different uh, Wi-Fi access points. So you may be able to um, put different people in a specific area during a specific time frame, um, it could be just a plain old witness that you might want to uh, track down and interview because they were in that area around about the time an incident occurred, 
or it could even potentially be um, your suspect. Yeah, wow. I hadn't thought about that side of it. Um, so so when you, with the investigators there um, at the scene, tell me some specific things they might they might need to ask uh, about these systems. Well, they're gonna they're gonna want to ask, obviously, what what types of systems are in the building? And you know, you may have to ask a number of different people because, you know, I've been to some incidents where the manager might know of a couple of the systems, but might might not know all of the systems. So, you know, I would always use that as a as a question for your witnesses during your interviews is, you know, what what types of um, what types of systems are in the building that might uh, be connected to Ethernet or might be connected to satellite or, you know, white might be, you know, connected through Wi-Fi. Um, are there any types of monitored systems that might be monitored remotely by a, a security company or whatnot? Uh, and just try to get as, uh, as large of a list as possible. And, you know, it's kind of amazing because we've gone to, you know, talking to somebody where they might just have two systems identified to, you know, you speak to a couple other employees and they throw out another couple systems. So now we're from two systems that are available to obtain data points to five systems. So, you know, you really kind of want to ask that question. Yeah, I think that that point about reaching out to different people is a really good one. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, because you're, you know, you're essentially hedging your bets. Yeah. Right. And, you know, at the same time, when you when you find out what systems are there, you know, obviously you want to consider, you know, what what type of motion or what type of interaction from the environment might cause that system to activate? Uh, you know, for, for example, you know, there might be door or window alarms, not necessarily from somebody breaking in, but from uh, one of the devices or sensors failing due to heat exposure. So you wanna kind of consider like, okay, what, what type of ways would I be receiving this data point from this specific system? and this specific device or sensor. Because once again, the, 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 big, the big takeaway here is you have to have proper context when you're, when you're using this information. Yeah. Um, you know, and that goes right into you know, understanding you know, how something can fail within the building. And again, what type of alarm or what kind of signal would I be getting a trouble signal or a supervisory signal? Um, and the way you can you could actually kind of, if if you're not too certain about that, contact the uh, the vendor that may have installed the system, and you know speak speak to them directly. You know, also with a lot of these systems, you're not necessarily going to want to access that data yourself. You might get certain data from you know from a, a witness like an owner or a manager or whatnot. They may have like email notifications of different events taking place, but you're also going to want to get that information off of the uh, the control panel. And for something like that, you're really going to need a technical expert that is familiar with that system. Because if you try to obtain that information off that panel yourself, you may either inadvertently create new data points that are that are inaccurate or you actually may erase inadvertently data points that you'll never get back. And then yeah, the worst part, huh? Oh yeah. Well, and then the other thing you want to consider is some of these devices and sensors may actually retain uh, information on it remotely within each individual device and sensor. So, you know, it really helps to contact 
you know, an engineer, you could contact uh, your local ATF CFI who, who can get in touch with one of our engineers, or you contact the, uh, the company that installed the system and they'll be able to let you know and they'll be able to send a technician out. Another thing you have to remember is this information is, you know, it, it may very well be subjected to uh, the Fourth Amendment protection for a search and seizure. So a lot of this, a lot of this information, you're going to, you're going to need either consent or you may need a subpoena or search warrant to get. We were moving along so fast. I forgot all about that. I'm sure other people do too. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. That's a very important point. And, you know, think about it often, but as you're cruising through all this opportunity for new information, it's, it's good to remember to check yourself up on those those basic things um so you you made one really good point and i and i well you've made a lot of good points i was gonna say just one yeah well specifically related to this this last topic um contacting the vendor or the manufacturer of something i think is so powerful i mean i i know that uh we've had people reach out to us as developers of some things related to cfi trainer one of the networks that we do and the the amount of information that's available that might not even be available to an administrator of an account often boggles my mind simple things like logging which people don't know that happens to be turned on on a server that's saving gigabytes of text that relates to every touch and click and you know action um I, I just thought that was a really good uh, point that you made, and I'd, I'd love to see people follow up with that. Um, I appreciate that. So you've, you've touched on some of this, but I'm going to bring it up again because this is so important to everybody that's out there um, about how the investigator can use this data and the origin cause specific determination. As an investigator, what you're, what you're going to want to do is, you know, once we go through all these different steps of, you know, identifying the system, uh, opining about what ways these different devices and sensors are going to uh, create a data point for you, you know, understanding the uh, system installation and the, the layout and locations of everything. One, once you get all that contextual data and it's normalized, then what you can do is you can sit down with either your investigative team, if there's more than one of you. Um, chances are, if it's a large scene, there is going to be more than one of you. And you know, take a uh, take a, a map or a schematic of the structure. And now remember, we're getting this information of where these different devices and sensors may be located. But then, what you want to do is you want to kind of drop down that information into that schematic that you already have. So, you know, essentially you're gonna be mapping out these different data points that you're receiving with the different times and then tracking, tracking that information back to, you know, your earliest uh, data point that you have within the context. Got it, okay. Tell us about the strengths of, of this Internet of Things data, and then we can go on obviously to the weaknesses. You know, there's a number of strengths and um, some of those we had gone over previously, yeah. which is, you know, that it's empirical and it kind of helps uh, remove some of the subjectivity that might potentially be there. It, uh, you know, it assists with the uh, accuracy and quality and integrity of the different data points. You know, it's timestamp data that produces a, a hard time data point for the investigator to consider. 
it's it's reliable. Once again, though, it's it comes back to um, it basically comes down to the context of that information. You want to make sure that you are able to put that information within its proper context of how is the system laid out and is the time normalized. Uh, creates you know a paper trail essentially for the investigator to look at and trace back, and um, it really kind of provides more of a black and white empirical picture, and it's it's more um, ob objective in nature as opposed to being subjective. And you know this you know when we look at the 921, this new recent iteration, the um, arc mapping was moved essentially under fire patterns. Well, this itself also creates almost essentially a fire pattern because you're actually tracking the pattern of uh, device and sensor activations and failures within a building. And you're looking at that in context with the entire system and within the context of the building. Interesting way to put it. So thanks for going over those again, because I, I really think that, you know, again, I, I love getting some of these more tactical um, things down to people and, and I know Kathy, who does our writing and things, would, would be proud that I'm getting some of these things repeated because a lot of what we're trying to do is educate. Um, so weaknesses. You know, with anything else, there's always, there's always going to be um, some potential issues or weaknesses within a, a technique. And that's why we utilize a bunch of different tools in our toolbox. We don't rely specifically on one particular uh, tool. So the, bi the biggest thing, really, again, and I can't say it enough, is you need to have the proper context. Uh, as an investigator, you need to understand the layout of the system, the type of the system, uh, what the construction is of the system, the devices and sensors, uh, where are the locations of them, how is the system installed, uh, and you also need to make sure that the times are normalized, because if you have a lack of context, obviously, you're going to then have a uh, poor interpretation of that data, and it, the potential is there for it to be improperly applied to the scene, and then it may lead to misinformation that that will not aid you and narrow down the area of origin or uh, the fire progression. You know, there's there's the potential for human error. Um, you know, in like again, like I said, inaccurate application. You know, in some type of error of commission. You may incidentally, let's say you don't reach out and contact the technician and you might accidentally um, uh, omit or delete information. So, you know, you just kind of have to kind of be cognizant of the fact that that's, that potential is there and, uh, and work, work around it. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, I, I guess that leads to something we dealt with back in the day when we were working on some things related to uh, electronic data with Secret Service. And I know there were experts. Can you talk about people uh, that an investigator might be able to reach out to for expertise? Sure. And, you know, that kind of comes in, you know, towards the conclusion of my research, I kind of came up with a with a number of areas that really kind of need to be researched further to try to make it even easier for investigators. And one of those was kind of developing a, uh, a system of best practices. So kind of, you know, for not for each individual um, 
business and, and each individual system for like specific businesses, but kind of like a general best practices of these different types of systems. And one of that would include like, hey, who do I need to reach out to to, to get you know, to get this information because sometimes the data comes out and it's plain as day and it's in, you know, it's just in regular um, verbiage that an investigator could understand. And then sometimes the, uh, the data points may come out in some type of a code that then has to be interpreted by an engineer or um, somebody familiar with that specific system, some type of technician. So, um, you know, you have to keep that in mind. And then, you know, also occasionally you're going to have to reach out to, um, you know, not only the manufacturer, but you might have to, to reach out to, um, you know, to the company that actually, um, you know, has come up with the uh, particular design of each, of each system and get information from them. And then, you know, sometimes the issues with that is they may be hesitant to provide you with that information not only because of you know what is one of the big issues we have nowadays liability concerns and the other is it may be uh, data that is uh, protected you know it, it's something that they may have uh, the market cornered on and they don't want to share share that data so again you, you have to remember that it's going to be subjected to um, you know fourth amendment you might have consent from the owner, but you might have to get a subpoena or a search warrant to get any information from the company if, if they choose to not be as uh, helpful as they should be. Got it. Yeah, a lot to remember. So I'm, I'm thinking uh, learning from case studies and you started to talk about one and you teased us a little bit at the beginning. You wanna give us some examples <laughs> of how you've seen uh, the internet of things make a difference? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I went through a bunch of different cases. There were some really interesting ones out there that are still um, going through the court system. So unfortunately, I was not able to use those. But you know, one goes back to a, a fire back in 2005 at a wine storage warehouse in California. So the building size was uh, about 240,000 square feet, and it was about a $450 million loss. And this building inside, they just they just contain storage of wine from all over the world. And the part of the building had a mezzanine on it. And what our agents were able to do was go in there and uh, map out the uh, beam, beam detectors, smoke detectors within that uh, building. And they were actually able to map out where the activations took place. And when they mapped out the activations that took place, it put them, specifically right in front of this one cage um, owned by a, a particular gentleman on the mezzanine. And then what they did was they began excavating that area and lo and behold, they ended up finding a, um, a propane torch that was laying on the ground there by a bunch of cardboard and it was actually still on the on position. So as a, as a result of that, um, they were actually able to uh, classify the fire as incendiary and basically the, the person that set the fire was involved with a, essentially some type of like Ponzi scheme with the selling and purchasing of wine. And he would sell wine, but he wouldn't pay the people back that he was storing the wine for. And then he was using that money for other, for other things. And then essentially when his clients were starting to close in on him, wondering where their money was, this fire happens. So the defendant ended up getting uh, 27 years in prison 
for for that particular fire. Wow. So I I need clarity on one thing. You said the propane torch was in the on position. Yeah, they they had looked at it, and it actually so happens that my husband was uh, he was the lead CFI on that fire. <laughs> and so, what was the idea that this person left it on and walked away? Yes. Yep. Give themselves time, get out of the building, and you know have a little bit of a delay between the fire starting and. You know, you have all this available uh, fuel, cardboard, and everything else in the area that's going to ignite fairly readily, and just just walked away and left. You know, I, I, maybe I'm going to sound naive, but I've been around you guys for almost 20 years, and I don't think I've heard about somebody. I've heard people leaving gas on, but not like a propane torch. Um, and it just seems like it's sort of like a, a new way of leaving the gas can behind. I, I, does this happen often? There's, you know, there's, there's just no, uh, no end to the uh, ingenuity <laughs> of somebody that really wants to, to do something. Uh, they, they make, they make it happen. It just seems like, you know, I, I just can't imagine that you'd expect that this tank in it's on position would burn up, but, uh, well, okay. you know, yeah, well, you know what it was is essentially it was, you know, it was one of those little torches that you might use to, uh, you know, to light your, uh, to light your fire pit or whatnot. And right. it has that little screw knob on it. And then you just click it and the gas comes out and it forms a flame. And that was just left laying there. Wow. Good story. <laughs> I think you have another. Yeah. So um, in Kansas City, Missouri, back in 2015, there was a, a fire that ultimately uh, resulted in the, uh, the death of two firefighters. It was a, a mixed commercial and residential structure. Overall size of the building was probably about, about 17,000 square feet. So our national response team got called in to assist, obviously, because I mean, it's, it's gonna be very taxing on the, on the locals and there's firefighter deaths. And we, we wanna make sure that, you know, a very thorough job is done and all our experts come in so altogether, the building was uh, 14 commercial, or I'm sorry, four commercial occupancies on the first floor and 16 apartments on the two stories above. And while we were in the process of processing the scene, and obviously you're doing a neighborhood canvas and you're looking for, you know, the, the, the new thing nowadays that kind of makes a lot of people li uh, people's lives easier is having something on video. So they were canvassing, looking for video and talking to neighbors and other businesses. And just so happens that when they went around the back of the structure, there was a bank of um, smart meters. So what these meters do, they're the electric meter, they record the, uh, the electrical usage within units of a structure. And what they do is they, um, they collect data on the power consumption in 15 minute intervals. And then every four hours for this particular system, it ends up transmitting this data. So, you know, these, these meters have an internal memory and then that data gets trans, um, it gets transmitted to, uh, to the company so that they can have a, um, a reading uh, where, that, where they're located. So what our electrical engineer did in conjunction with our, our lead CFI was essentially start to create a, a pattern of some type of a um, like background usage for 
essentially a baseline of what was the general uh, usage of electricity in that building, in those units for about two weeks prior to the incident. And this way, once again, it gives you the context when you're looking at uh, different things that are going on, you have some kind of solid foundation to build off of. And what they did was they looked at not only the, um, the uh, house power for the structure, but then the usage for the individual units. And on the day of the fire, they were kind of looking at when the power uh, fell to zero. So by doing this, uh, they were able to determine that the unit of origin was a, a nails and spa salon that was located on the first floor um, because the uh, trying to time the, uh, the loss of the uh, electrical power for where these different conductors are running through the building. So everything was mapped out. And then they actually were able to uh, have some video of the uh, suspect leaving the scene. They also did further research and were able to determine that this person was involved in a couple other insurance fraud schemes involving fire. So ultimately the, uh, the defendant was charged with two counts of murder and arson charges. The fire was classified obviously as an incendiary fire and the defendant received a 74 year prison sentence. Wow. So help me out again, because um, I may have missed it while I was sitting here looking at notes. I, I, I'm trying to think, where, where was it that the identity, that, that you were able to make the determination of incendiary? So what they, what they essentially did was they were able to narrow down the area of origin in this building to a, um, uh, the northeast, northeast corner of the first floor storage room within that nail salon and spa. And then they were able to go in there and look at any potential accidental causes that could have occurred and they were able to eliminate those. Then at the same time, they looked at you know, the video of when this person was seen leaving to when we start getting the first traces of an incident taking place. And then you know, combining that with the contextual data from the, uh, the smart meters to build, okay. a, to build out a timeline. Okay, thank you for the clarity. Sure. Even, if it, even if it was only for me. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I am so grateful. I, I'm wondering, um, you, I'm wondering what we're missing. Uh, you've been wonderfully concise. Uh, I think the, the information that you're involved in is great. I, I, I love the fact that you did your dissertation on this, but I, I want to make sure we're giving you an opportunity to wrap up or is there anything that I missed? You know, I think, I think the biggest thing is there's, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. Um, luckily we have, uh, some new CFI candidates for the ATF program uh, going through the program where they have to do their own individual research projects. So I'm going to probably reach out to a couple of them and see if anybody kind of wants to work with me with pushing this research forward. What I would really like to do, um, and I know we have some engineers that are working on it now, is, you know, this overall large concept of these big fire scenes that I used as case studies it really would be great to uh, narrow that down to smaller structures such as residences and looking at you know, maybe smart appliances and smart homes and ring camera systems and nest thermostats and, and how those uh, systems and devices can be utilized maybe to narrow down uh, a time frame or an area of origin within a residence. Maybe looking at the, 
you know, the temperature reading within a building or um, looking at, you know, when different uh, activations or, or signals come through, or maybe even, you know, looking at uh, the humidity levels within the building. And then furthermore, you know, applying, applying this to um, vehicles, looking at maybe a vehicle fire, fire, you know, a lot of your newer vehicles nowadays have um, what are called infotainment systems. And those infotainment systems can be downloaded and they provide a plethora of information. I mean, it, it could be from, you know, when, you know, when were the doors locked or, you know, when were the doors unlocked? When was a door opened? Uh, how long were you driving for? What's, what speed you were driving for, uh, driving. And then the amazing thing also is um, if, you, if you have your cell phone in these vehicles and a lot of people like to connect their phone through Bluetooth in the vehicle, well, the potential is there that that entire phone could have been downloaded into the vehicle memory system. And now the investigator not only has uh, the information on the vehicle operations and whatnot, but they also have information directly off of the person's phone. Yeah, it's amazing how much information is captured and how much information is sent from the vehicle. I know Toyota, I think they're tracking my every move uh, <laughs> on, a, on a new vehicle. And I, I just think, wow, um, you know, they write me messages that are obviously specific to my mileage. Uh, they ask me, if, you know, the speed issue is interesting. And I know with insurance companies, they're talking about, you know, looking at people's driver habits and they're watching acceleration, deacceleration, all those things. It's a... Uh, well, I think it used to be a little easier to get away. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I mean, it's almost like Big Brother is watching everywhere now. Yeah, well, I guess if, you know, for us that are following the law, it's not as much of a concern, but uh, very true. <laughs> I, I appreciate your time today so much. And uh, this is interesting to me personally and, and timely, I think, especially as all of this uh, technology is so rapidly expanding. Uh, wow. It's just, like I said earlier, a lot more to keep up with, uh, for fire investigation, fire investigators. But I think at the same time, you know, that learning about that is, uh, also motivating or it would be to me, I can, I can imagine it would be. So, um, thank you yes, for giving everybody this. Absolutely. Time. I appreciate you having me. Well, we're very grateful and, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in the future. Absolutely. Something tells me we will. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Rod. Thank you. Bye Take bye. care. You too. Now for some news from the IAAI. Two scholarships are currently open to members of the IAAI until October 1st. That's coming up pretty quick here, so uh, take advantage of this opportunity. There is one $5,000 Foundation Academic Scholarship that will be awarded to provide financial assistance to students pursuing formal education and a curriculum consistent with the mission of the IAAI. There are also five $1,000 Foundation Training Scholarships that are awarded to selected applicants to enhance their education in the fire explosion investigation profession by attending the IAAI International Training Conference or other select IAAI training events. Go to firearson.com or IAAIfoundation.net for more information and apply today. The deadline is Saturday, October 1st. This is our 100th episode of the CFITrainer.net podcast. We'd like to take a moment to thank you for your support. Thousands of you tune in every month and we're grateful for the many messages you send us telling how you've enjoyed the episodes 
and the value that they've had in your work. It's your support that keeps us going and pushes us to find new topics that will add value to the investigations you participate in. Thank you. And thank you for your work that you're doing out there in the field every day to prevent fires, care for victims, and hold criminals accountable for their actions. Please let us know what you're thinking. Your opinions and suggestions are really appreciated. You can use the feedback form on this page. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from the Fire Prevention and Safety Grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. We also get support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe and we'll see you next month. For the International Association of Arson Investigators and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon. Thank you.